Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Then we see the pharma marketing machine sends drop-dead gorgeous pharma reps uh, to doctor's offices who make the, who flirt, who make them feel special. They're taken out for steak dinners. They're given bonuses for, uh, you know, prescription behaviors, which can and absolutely do influence their behavior, the way that they are scripting out these drugs. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. Tis me, your host, as always, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And we are doing an AMA and Ask Me Anything today. And if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, you'll have to pardon my lack of makeup. There's just lip gloss on today, but I feel like we're friends and uh, it's it's about that time. So uh, I am answering all of your questions. I polled you on Instagram. Lots of questions coming in. First, all about my recent wedding. So the diet and the training. Uh, there were some pretty uh, intimate questions in here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for those with you. We're going to talk about HRT. We're going to talk about creatine, ozempic, estrogen, signs of perimenopause, um, symptoms of you know the four phases of perimenopause, and do I still intermittent fast? What do I think about seed cycling and all the like? So Let's tuck in, shall we? I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. 
We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot, as I have been doing, with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. So for some of you, maybe uh, you didn't know, but um, I just recently uh, tied the knot with the love of my life, Giovanni. We just tied the knot earlier this um, month in June. And by the time you're hearing this, this will be sort of towards the end of June, early July. And we had just a beautiful wedding. It was the wedding of my dreams, um, marrying the man of my dreams. So it was really lovely. And of course, Uh, Lots of questions coming in about the diet and the leading up to it. So tell me all your, what was your diet leading up to the wedding? And I'll start off by saying, I'm going to disappoint you, but it's not, it wasn't really that different than how I sort of always eat. So I love to eat protein and carbs in that peri exercise window. So if I have a little bit more flexibility in the morning, it'll be before I exercise most days when I'm working out at five or five thirty, sometimes I have started putting in a little scoop of protein powder and some collagen in my water um, on my way to the gym. That doesn't seem to feel like the brick in my stomach, so I can I can tolerate that. But protein and carbs, kind of either right before, certainly right after. Um, always looking to take in some proteins and some carbohydrates at post workout. Uh, I am going to admit that in the last month or so, my vegetables, um, I have been a baddie. So <laughs> haven't, haven't been spending the, the time sort of luxuriating and savoring my kitchen as I normally do. So most of my vegetables have been coming from AG1, uh, which is a supplement that you may have heard me talk about on the show before, but it's basically an all-in-one kind of uh, supplement that has your probiotics and post it's basically for me, it replaces all the vegetables that I wasn't getting in the last month. Uh, So a little bit more reliance on a supplement for getting all my veggies in. And my protein sources are, you know, typically eggs in the morning with some avocados, maybe some sourdough bread. That's kind of my favorite breakfast ever. Uh, Lunch more of the same. It's like either chicken or ground beef. I do have this amazing chuck roast recipe that I just kind of salt and pepper the chuck roast, pop it in the oven, 375 for four hours. Um, and then you take it out and it's just, it melts in your mouth. It's absolutely delicious. So I'll put some, maybe some rice or some sweet potatoes or something like that with it. Dinner's more the same. And then I have been getting in touch with my inner protein shake. (laughs) So, um, making sure that I'm keeping my protein 
high, partially because of the high volume of training um, that I consistently do uh, and looking for the protein to help with recovery. So currently I'm not calorie counting and I didn't calorie count leading up to the wedding. But if I had to guess, probably, you know, every day I'm probably eating something like 150 to 180 grams of protein every day. Part of that is from getting in touch with my inner protein shake. So, um, you know, you can get probably easily 30 grams of protein from, you know, a regular portion size of your chicken or your ground beef or whatever it is. But the, you know, one scoop of protein is going to give you 25. So I will do one or two scoops of that um, once or twice a day, and then you can pair it, you can make it into like a little bit of a dessert, which I like to do as well. And then the other part of my diet that I did make sure happened coming, like coming up to the wedding, because I knew that I wasn't going to be able to drink a lot of water on the day of because good Lord, getting in and out of that dress, like I had to go to the bathroom and I had to have my sister-in-law come into the bathroom with me, lift up my dress help me take off my underwear and go to the bathroom. So any ladies who have ever been married and you had sort of the big dress, uh, I didn't have like a big poofy dress, but it was just very long. Uh, she had to sort of hold up the entire dress. And I was like, God, I am so sorry. <laughs> so I just had to pee. But anyway, leading up to the wedding, uh, drinking at least a gallon of water a day, I really wanted my skin to be hydrated. I wanted uh, to, you know, of course, when you're drinking, you can often distinguish between actual hunger and uh, when you're thirsty because those things often feel the same. So uh, lots of water leading up to the wedding. The day of the wedding, good grief, I think I had four sips of water the entire day because I had to, to, before I got the wedding dress on, I was drinking and like, you know, kind of voiding and whatever. And then once I got the dress on, I was like, okay, I'm not having another sip of water because having to pee in this thing is going to be really uncomfortable. And as I just described, my poor sister-in-law <laughs> to help me uh, go to the bathroom in it. So, um, so that was my kind of diet. Uh, the training stayed pretty much the same. So currently I'm training uh, with weights. I train five days a week, um, sometimes six, but it's usually five days and that's three upper two lower. And then the other two days are cardio. Um, and so the training has pretty much remain the same volume and weights. Um, you know, if I'm in a calorie deficit, I usually find that I can't punch out the same weights and I've been making some really awesome progress, uh, in my squats and my deadlifts. So I didn't, so there wasn't really calorie cutting or anything there. So that's, that's training and diet, uh, shapewear. Now y'all, I mean, we really must be friends for you guys to ask me this question. <laughs> One of the questions that came in was, what kind of shapewear did you wear on the day? And um, I didn't wear any. And but I will say, so I didn't wear any shapewear, like no spanks or anything like that. Uh, I did. I didn't even, even though I wanted to, but I didn't even wear those. Um, I call them chicken fillets, uh, like those little boob things that you sort of put into your bra to sort of m- you know make you a little bit more voluminous. Let's say, like it gives you a bit more cleavage. I am um, the president and founder of the Itty Bitty Titty Committee. So I have, you know, we're kind of small up top, if you will. Uh, so I bought those little chicken fillets to put in my dress, but I didn't end up wearing them because when I put the dress on with those chicken fillets, it's, we were going to have a Janet Jackson moment. Like it was, there wasn't any room for them. And I was kind of like, I'm the little cup, like the little area for my breasts to go were already pretty small. So uh, I ended up wearing a thong and a bra. 
And I can't believe I just told you that. So <laughs> now we're besties. All right, moving on. Um, so uh, the only the only other thing, actually, there was a question here um, around uh, dieting down for the wedding or my like this year round. The only alteration I'll say leading up to the wedding was that my husband, I guess I can officially say that now, my husband, uh, Giovanni and I ran a mastermind because we're crazy, by the way, but we ran a mastermind uh, three the three days prior to the wedding. So the wedding was sort of the icing on the cake, wah, wah, uh, following the mastermind. So my eating patterns for those three days were almost entirely thrown off. So I normally like to work out in the morning and then I eat and then I'm eating again and then I'm eating again. So because of the we'll say the frenetic and the busy nature of running an event, three-day event, my eating patterns were in, probably entirely thrown off. I probably ate less than I normally would have. Um, although I don't know if that made a huge difference in how I looked or my weight. Uh, I don't really, at least for me, I, I don't really make any measurable progress in three days. Like it needs to be, you know, weeks and weeks of, of kind of doing the same thing before you see anything measurable change there. I am doing a boudoir, so now we're really getting intimate. So I'm doing a boudoir shoot next week at the time of this recording. So I am trying to think a little bit about my food because I feel like in some ways a wedding dress can kind of cover all manner of sins, but I'm going to be basically in my knickers and my bra. So I'm, I'm trying to think a little bit about my food, but I did have cake, wedding cake for three days after the wedding, so... Uh, yeah, we'll see how that turns out. Um, so I, you know, a little bit of a disrupted eating pattern, maybe the couple days before the wedding, but nothing, nothing really, um, you know, substantially or marginally um, different. Another question, I really like this question. It was, how do you have fun when you are so disciplined? And I, I want to tell you a story um, <laughs> about how I used to not be really fun um, and not really have the ability to to be fun or to have fun. And it was a couple of years ago now, I hired a coach. And this was a coach who was supposed to help me get in touch with my feminine side. I had, I've recognized for many years that I am very much a type A personality, uh, very driven, all the accolades, all the success, all of those things that, that really give me that dopaminergic rush when I achieve something. And like many type A personalities, probably, nah, I don't, maybe maybe a little pathologized, like maybe more to the extreme, to the point where my softness, uh, there was a point where I, I recognized, I was like, I can't remember the last time that I cried. Like it had been years that I had just allowed for that release and I had always felt sort of on edge and guarded. So I hired this coach, God bless this woman, let me just say, so after a couple of sessions with her, uh, she probably in all of her wisdom, now I'm looking at this in hindsight, you know, hindsight's almost 2020. But at the time, she said, you know, what I think is going to be really helpful for you is if you take a piece. So in between our calls, so we'll meet next week, but in between our calls, like at some point this week, what I want you to do is I want you to take a piece of chocolate from your favorite chocolate, you know, that you like to eat. And I want you to just take a square and let it melt in your mouth and just just savor it. And you know, you can come back next week with any observations and any thoughts that you have around this exercise. 
Well, let me tell you, ladies, that I was so angry and furious that she had given me this ridiculous and inefficient exercise. Like what in my, you know, in my state at the time, I was like, what the hell is this have to do about anything? You know, why do I need to inefficiently just sit there while the damn chocolate melts in my mouth? Why can't I just chew it and get on with it? Right? So what do I do? I fire her. (laughs) I'm like, you know what? I don't think that this is the right fit. Like this is why I say, Lord bless this woman for putting up with my crap because, you know, later on, of course, only to realize that it's her, you know, in her brilliance, she's given me a very easy exercise to demonstrate why it's important to slow down, how to be present, how to attune into your senses. And meanwhile, like I'm giving myself a lobotomy with how hard I'm rolling my eyes at her. I'm thinking like, what the hell am I paying for? This is such a stupid exercise. Why am I going to, like I'm paying you so that I can go and get chocolate and eat a square, a chocolate square slowly, like get out of here. Anyway, so I, I bring, I share that story with you uh, in vulnerability in a way, but also because uh, it is a learned skill for someone like me to be able to savor the bliss and to be able to hold on to it. So am I the person that can just leisurely sit with chocolate and let it melt in her mouth effortlessly with grace and ease now? No, but I am orders of magnitude better than I was when I had hired that coach. So I have really leaned into the idea of, yes, I can be very driven and I can be very successful by working hard and being proud of my work. And I will also really slow down. So some of the things that I do right now, you know, to answer your question, how do you have fun when you're so disciplined? I usually stop working at about three o'clock every day. And that coincides with when my children are done school and I will basically get soccer balls kicked at my head for a couple hours, or we'll go play basketball or, you know, help them with their homework. Like that for me is a lot of fun to be able to spend time with my boys. And, you know, even in this sort of post wedding blissful time, for me, it's the little moments that I have um, with Giovanni. So, you know, we're having really a lot of fun just saying husband and wife to each other like wow hi husband hi hi wifey so we're having a lot of tr- a lot of a lot of pleasure and a lot of um joy out of you know being officially married now and i was telling this to a friend um earlier this week and i'll share with you as well my feelings for him have changed it's so i mean i don't know if anyone else can relate to this i mean i've been with giovanni now for gosh, maybe six, seven, maybe even longer at this, maybe seven years at this point. And, you know, have known, you know, you in seven years, you see the good, you see the bad, you see all the things, right? And my love for him inexplicably, or maybe explicably, uh, has changed. It's it's deeper. I have, in some ways, I feel more committed to him than that than I ever have. And there's something about writing your own vows, saying it in front of people that you love, um, having a communal ceremony in a way and and having people witness that feels really good. So um, I have fun kind of every day. I like to think that it's open mic night all the, all the time. And in my head, I'm hilarious. So I do try to have fun. It uh, doesn't always work, but uh, I do try to have fun and also be disciplined. So I think that kind of the bottom line, at least for me, is that you can do, you can be many things at once. So you can ha- be a fun person and you can be disciplined. You can be a mother 
and you can be sexy. You can be confident and sometimes not feel sure of yourself. Like there's a continuum for everything. And then it's just a really a matter of, of oscillating along that spectrum um, regularly. So that's maybe how I would answer it. Maybe there's a little bit of philosophy in there or life lessons, but I hope that it inspires you to figure out how you can maybe be more fun or take more pleasure uh, in your life in a, in a life that's probably very disciplined anyway. A couple questions here about if I am on hormonal replacement therapy. Um, the answer is no, but I'm certainly not against it. Uh, I do have, I do know it to be a lifesaver for many uh, women. So I would say that in the order of when I'm thinking about what's now, what's next, certainly understanding your labs. So if you are considering HRT, first you want to consider your age, right? So how old are you? Are you sort of in that drop zone? Many women really benefit from bioidentical uh, hormone replacement therapy and synthetic hormonal replacement therapy before the onset of menopause, like before the actual menopausal diagnosis is levied. Uh, and that is usually because there is some symptom that the woman is dealing with. So I am not on HRT yet. My progesterone levels are beautiful still. They're, you know, they're starting to drop a little bit, but I still within what I uh, would consider normal. And I would, when I do uh, start uh, BHRT, because that's that would be my order of operations, is like first get the lab test, figure out where you are. Uh, is it, are you in an optimal range? If you're not, what is the next step? For me, it would be BHRT. It wouldn't be HRT. So it would be bioidenticals first and likely, more than likely, it would be progesterone before I would be taking any estrogens. Estrogens usually are still pretty consistently uh, higher into the late 40s and 50s for some women. It sort of depends on a variety of factors, stress and genetics and that kind of thing. But Usually for most women, progesterone is the entry point for hormone replacement therapy, whether bioidentical or synthetic progestin. And I, because this question will probably, maybe it's ruminating, maybe you're already thinking it, the goal for taking BHRT is not to be fertile, right? The, the goal of the bioidentical uh, or the HRT, we'll just call it HRT. But when I say that, I'm referring to sort of both types, whether it's synthetic or bioidentical. It's not to it's not to be fertile. Like we don't want fertile 60-year-olds, right? I think that there's a lot of conversation in the functional medicine community around, well, do we want to be extending the menstrual cycle well beyond, you know, the natural um, uh, stopping of it at about, you know, the average age is like 51, 52-ish. And I don't think that we want fertile 65 year olds. Like how, I don't think that that's going to be productive. Like if you're going to have a child at 60, by the time your your by the time your baby is, if you do get pregnant at 60 and you deliver that baby when you're 61 or, you know, 61 ish, let's say, depending on when your birthday is, by the time that baby's 20, you're going to be 81. You know, that's, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think that having a fertile 60 year old is the goal. I think that it is to supplement waning hormones and to alleviate symptoms. So you also want to be working with someone who can play around with dosages and who's going to be testing you before and after, right? You want to be looking at where's my baseline, let's say progesterone in this case, what is the, what's the baseline level of progesterone? Should I take this for, 
four to six months, and then we can kind of reevaluate both the symptomatic, like the the lived experience of the woman, but then also get some um, objective data and take some blood work and kind of take a look at and see what her progesterone levels are like as well. So that's sort of my little spiel. I'm not on it yet is probably the best way to answer it, but I'm not opposed to it. And when it's time for me to be on progesterone, you bet your ass that I, you bet your candy little ass that I am going to, I'm, I'm going to be on it because certainly some of the symptoms, and, and I would say that it would be also for me, my decision in my decision tree, it would also be, is this trying to alleviate something? So am I starting to see shorter cycles? Am I starting to see POI? Um, so ovarian uh, insufficiency, which can happen for women in their 40s? Am I starting to look like I'm estrogen dominant, which I know that I can run if I'm not, if I don't keep my stress in check and my diet's off and my training's off and all that kind of stuff. So that would also be another sort of branch or arm of my decision-making tree is what are the symptoms, like I'm taking this, but what are the symptoms that I'm trying to correct? Because once you start on hormonal replacement therapy, it's you're sort of you know you're tethered right like you're you're sort of in there for for the next little bit because now you are taking exogenous hormones which is going to sort of further downregulate your own endogenous production of it right so I'll I'll kind of leave that there. A lot of questions about creatine. Do I take it daily? Do I cycle it? Uh, you know that I'm the lady. I'm the cyclical lady. I like uh, I like to do. I like to look at uh, life in general through the lens of cycles. I, with creatine, I typically supplement with it daily when I train. So um, I will, as I mentioned, I'm training probably about five days a week now. It's pretty consistently five days a week. Sometimes it's six, but most times it's five. And then the other two fill days, we'll say, are like active rest days. Like I'm doing some cardio to work my cardiopulmonary system, my VO2 max, that kind of stuff. What ends up happening for me is that I do cycle it. I usually will be on it, you know, and then I'll be on it for maybe one or two cycles uh, and I'll do it consistently five days a week. And then I'm usually off for a week. And the reason there's no particular reason for this other than my own ineptitude, which means I've run out of the, you know, the the jug that it comes in, I've run out of the creatine then I have to remember to order it, which takes me like a couple of training days to remember like, oh, okay, when I'm making my protein shake, I don't have the creatine to add in there. And then I got to remember to get on Amazon and then deliver blah, blah, blah. So that usually takes about a week. So I'm probably on it for about two months consistently, like five days a week. And then I take about a week off because I'm not organized enough to do ship and save or whatever the thing is on subscribe and save on, on Amazon. And just because I love words, creatine is named after the Greek word for meat. So kreas is for all my Greek listeners. Uh, you'll know what I'm saying here. So the Greek word for meat is kreas. And so creatine uh, was first isolated in uh, skeletal tissue. And the, um, the founder or the person who discovered it named it creatine because it was found in, in skeletal muscle. And for those of you that don't know what what I'm even talking about, like what, what is creatine? Should I be taking it? You know, et cetera. It's basically, uh, it's not, it's not a protein, but it is the primary, maybe the best way to say it is the primary constituent of phosphocreatine, which is a system or that is used to regenerate or to create ATP within the cell. 
So probably, gosh, I'd say 95 to, we'll, we'll call it 95, 95 to 97% of the humans, of, of our total creatine is found in skeletal muscle, right? The remainder is going to be sprinkled in the blood, the brain, you know, other, other tissues, but primarily it's in the muscle and you're going to degrade probably, you know, one to 2% of intramuscular creatine per day. Okay. So you'll, you'll hear people uh, ask like, what is the supplement? Like, why should I be supplementing? How often should I supplement? Do I load and deload? So typically if you're someone who is, is active, so you're working out about an hour a day, uh, you're going to degrade about one to two percent of that intramuscular creatine. So you're going to need somewhere between three and five grams per day to maintain that average creatine um, storage. So if you're someone who has uh, who eats meat, kreas, if you remember the word Greek word for meat, kreas, creatine. If you're someone who eats a combination of meat and let's say plants, like an omnivore, meat has a is a very rich source of creatine. We are usually eating, right? We're eating the muscle, right? When we're eating meat, typically, unless if you're a carnivore or you're super fancy and you're having the organs as well, most of us eat the muscle. Uh, like when we have steaks and when we have chicken breasts and these are like, that's the pecs, like the chicken breast that we're eating is the peck of the, of the chicken. So the, if you're, if you have an omnivorous, uh, an omnivorous diet, roughly half of your daily requirement, like roughly half of that three to five grams of creatine, you're going to get from your diet. Uh, the remainder can be resynthesized, right? Liver, kidneys and stuff. Uh, I typically, when I'm supplementing, I take five grams because I usually miss two days. <laughs> so I'm trying to make up for it. Um, and the way that you might load the cell and the way that I've done it, I've done it uh, one of two ways. One is if I'm pretty patient or just unorganized, which I often am, is just five grams a day for about a month. And that is going to be enough to saturate the myocyte so that the total uh, muscle creatine storage is going to be saturated after about a month or about one menstrual cycle. Um, you can also load in a week. So you can also take like 20 grams a day for, you know, six or seven days that will also saturate the muscle. And just keep in mind that if you do it the longer way, which is usually how I do it, if I'm being honest, you have to wait the entire month of the supplementation in order to reap some of the benefits, uh, that creatine is going to have, um, in your performance, in your mental cognition, in your, uh, in the brain fog, in, you know, your explosive power and your, and just on the cellular level, your body's ability to, um, uh, to generate energy during uh, activities like resistance training, burst training, et cetera. So depends on how patient you are. I'm a pretty patient person. I like to play the long game. So I will usually, I, what I do is I take, as I've mentioned, creatine five grams uh, daily when I train. And that way I'm sort of covering my bases. Like I'm always uh, replacing the creatine that I lost, that I lose through, um, through movement. So that's what I wanted to say um, about creatine. So I think that you can probably um, saturate the myocyte over the course of a of a, a 28 day or so period, or you can load it up in a week by taking about 20 grams um, per day. I think that that's um, I think either of those are are wonderful. What I will say. Uh, for example, today's, so, and of course there's always an exception today for me is also an exception. So today is, uh, when I'm recording, this is a cardio day for me. So I've just spent, you know, the last three days we're training today. I'm taking 
a bit of a recovery day. And I don't know what I was thinking this morning, but I got on my bike and I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do an FTP, which is um, basically it's your functional threshold. So it's, it's seeing, it's testing how long you can hold uh, a certain output, like a certain tension on the bike at a certain wattage. So a certain uh, amount of resistance, let's say. And I just about died today. So my, <laughs> uh, so I did legs yesterday. So my legs are, you know, kind of tired and fatigued and stuff. And I, I, I think my watts were 20, uh, 233. So I was punching out like 233 watts and I was able to maintain it for about 22 minutes. And you better believe that even though I didn't train today, I marched my butt after that cardio workout upstairs made myself a protein shake and gave myself some creatine because my legs were just dead. They were just dead. So there are days where I am super on it. Like today I had this, you know, kind of really difficult, uh, bike workout and remember to take the creatine, but it doesn't always happen. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster, and of course, stress reduction. With the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna, it's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. Okay. Question about... Ozempic. Gosh, why is Ozempic all the rage? That was a question. And I'll say that um, there's a lot of, it's, it's so interesting. There's so, people can become so polarized about, uh, about something like Ozempic. And I think that Ozempic is um, basically a semaglutide, right? So it is a, it mimics the action. So it's, it's called a GLP-1 receptor agonist. So all those big words basically just means that it mimics the action of GLP-1. And G- all you need to know about GLP-1 uh, is that it helps to increase insulin secretion. So it increases your natural insulin secretion. And it in- so and when we in- increase our insulin secretion, what happens? We get increased blood sugar disposal, right? So we are taking the blood sugar out of the plasma, we're taking it out of the blood and we're dumping it into the cells. So it's going to improve glycemic control. So you're going to see better blood sugar markers with it. It also makes you less hungry, right? It reduces your appetite. It makes you feel fuller longer. Side effects may include nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, constipation, loss of mass, <laughs> muscle mass. It's like one of those commercials, like side effects may include death. Uh, so where, where I think we go wrong with medications like this is I do think that it's a useful tool for an obese uh, patient, for a patient who is a victim of the system, really, let's just call it what it is. Someone who is a type two diabetic 
someone who has cardiovascular disease, these are largely lifestyle diseases, right? So this is where, um, you know, we may see someone over consume calories over a very long delta. Typically it's processed foods and it's not necessarily the processed foods that are causing the, um, the weight gain, but it is the lack of satiety and the and the overconsuming, the over, like the increased caloric ingestion of the foods, of course, that are causing the um, the the weight gain. So it's like that Kiko, right? It's like calories in versus calories out, or Seco, depending on how we're pronouncing the C in C I C O, Kiko or Seco. So someone who is a who's fallen uh, fallen to the system. That's how I would like to say uh, can really benefit from this. So someone who's obese or morbidly obese, uh, who has dysregulated, uh, dopamine, uh, responses to food who may have, you know, may have, have a history of trauma. There's other things that are sort of contributing to the obesity. Maybe they're on other medications that are also driving up obesity. I do think that this medication can be useful where I think we're going wrong is where we see celebrities who have all the access in the world to chefs and trainers and uh, stress uh, management techniques where they are using the drug to drop weight quickly. And they pair that with their own caloric restriction, let's say, and fitness. Uh, and they do it maybe for press, for attention or whatever. Every, you know, I, I, you know, I call them, you know, garbage rags that you sort of see in the nail salon or, or whatever when you're checking out at the grocery store, every sort of uh, raggy magazine always wants to feature someone who's dropped so much weight, the before and the after, right? So a lot of celebrities, unfortunately, kind of know that if they want to get some attention, maybe there's a movie coming out or there's something they want to promote or they're just trying to stay relevant, uh, are getting on this drug and um, you know trying to uh, take a piece of the attention pie, we'll say. And I think when you've been in the healthcare field as long as I am, you start to see patterns emerge over and over again. And once you see the pattern enough times, you can sort of recognize it when it's starting. So here's kind of what it looks like. And Ozempic fits all of these. So there's this new miracle drug cure-all, right? Then we see the pharma marketing machine sends drop dead gorgeous pharma reps uh, to doctor's offices who make the, who flirt, who make them feel special. They're taken out for steak dinners. They're given bonuses for, uh, you know, prescription behaviors, which can and absolutely do influence their behavior, the way that they are scripting out these drugs. The drug is given en masse to the population, right? Because we have these drug these, these doctors that are being, uh, influence consciously or unconsciously uh, through incentives. And it's given out en masse, and then we start to see side effects. Raise your hand if that sounds like something that we saw in the last couple of years. I, I think that you see that pattern enough times, like miracle drug, no side effects. And then you see the reports, and it's like redacted, redacted, <laughs> redacted. And then, of course, once it's out en masse to the population, we see the side effects. Unfortunately, we see the side effects. And then it's usually not corrected until like 10, 20, sometimes more years after the fact. So that's my thoughts on Ozempic. I think it's useful. And I think that we need to proceed with caution. 
And if there's one thing that I can do for you, my listeners, my dear listeners who I love so much, is that I can teach you how to think critically and maybe suss out some patterns that may not be inherently obvious to you because you you know you haven't been in practice or whatever whatever the reason is for however many years but for you to think critically for yourself and for you to advocate for yourself that would be how I would if there's anything that I can ever do for you that's what I would want that's what I would want for you for you to take out of this podcast okay so let's let's talk about estrogen so i had a question come in uh, about estrogen dominance and reduced blood flow during her period so she asked you know i have this reduced blood flow during my period? Is it estrogen? And what happens when I receive questions like this? So just so you ladies, so everyone who's listening, just so you know what happens to my brain when I have a, when I hear a question like this. So I have reduced blood flow during my period. Is it estrogen? That was the question. My brain basically explodes with questions like fast and furious. I can't stop them. So because I, I, I always want more color. I will always want more detail. So in my mind, it's like, okay, so we know that menstrual periods usually, uh, you know, consist of something like two to three tablespoons of blood, like 40 mils ish, uh, of blood. So when you say lighter period, so I have a, you know, lighter blood flow, right? Lighter blood flow during my period. Does that mean a period that's shorter in duration than usual for you? Does that mean that you're changing your pad or your tampon less than usual is it that you don't have that heavy flow at the initial onset of bleeding for like that first day or two, but then you have a consistent light fl- flow for the rest of it. <laughs> is it, is it like bleeding that resembles spotting? You know, so this is, this is what happens in my brain. So I, I'm going to try to answer this question with all of those parameters uh, in, in place. Okay. So first of all, Women who have been bleeding for a while, um, you'll notice that as we are, well, first I'll say that period flow can vary, right? It'll vary through the, like through your lifetime. So usually when we first start bleeding, like in our, when we're teenagers, it usually can be a little spotty, right? It's usually quite light. It's usually bright pink. Um, and then we get a little, sometimes we can be, get a little dysregulated, you know, age 16, 17, 18, the period can kind of look, you can, uh, the woman can, or the, I'll say young woman at this point, uh, when she's 16, 17, it can kind of look a little like pcos if that's a word, you know, you might have a few skip periods, a few anovulatory periods. Um, and so periods typically in terms of flow become more regular when you're, when you're in your twenties and thirties. And I would even add on to that even more regular after you've had a baby. I uh, have always, and I've shared this with you in my book and shared this with you uh, on the podcast, always have had kind of terrible periods, but there are a couple of points in my life where it really did improve. So one was immediately following the birth of my children. And then there were many other stressful things that sort of came after the birth of my children. My clinic burned down. I went through a divorce and my periods went from better to just insanely bad. And then going on vacation as you know, if any of you've read the book, the Betty body, uh, you'll know that my trip to Italy was sort of my, uh, I don't know, it was my aha moment where I was actually having a great period, even though I was kind of at a really low point in my life. So Periods tend to become more regular, 20s and 30s. 
Uh, and then I'll say after pregnancy um, as well. But when we are moving into our late 30s and 40s, so by that time, most of us, if we are thinking about having children, have probably had our kids in our 40s, although there are certainly exceptions to that as well. But many women will notice that in their late 30s and 40s that we are going to potentially start developing heavier periods because of progesterone dropping and estrogen is kind of running dominant in the luteal phase of the cycle. And then they will move into a lighter, they can often become lighter and maybe more irregular through the perimenopausal years, okay? So age, all that to say that age is a huge factor in the uh, strength, we'll say, of your bleed. Uh, I mentioned it before, but a lack of, when I was talking about PCOS, but a lack of ovulation sometimes will also, well, not sometimes, always will contribute to uh, lighter periods because you know, you're not releasing an egg. So when you're anovulatory, this can lead to either absent uh, periods or very, very light uh, periods as well. And then I, you know, mentioned POI, primary ovarian um, insufficiency. This is when uh, a woman's ovaries stop functioning properly uh, before menopause. That can also cause scant and light periods as well. So a lack of ovulation is another reason why you might see light, uh, light periods body weight changes. Okay. So if you are underweight or you have lost a large amount of weight in a short period of time, you will also see your period affected with that. So, uh, your periods may become very light or they may stop altogether. I experienced this when I was competing, uh, in figure, I lost my period. It was probably like three or four months, even after the show, because I had such low body weight and really messed up my period for my entire cycle, really, uh, for for quite a long time. So when your body fat level is too low, that will stop ovulation. Women, we we not, we just need a little extra padding, you know. Like you gotta gotta give the gotta give the boys something to hold on to. So uh, we need a little we need a little extra fat. We hold a little bit more extra adipose tissue than our male counterparts do. Um, so that's one thing, and of course that encapsulates eating disorders as well, right? So if you are underweight. Um, or you are overly restricting your calories for a long period of time, you'll lose your period. We often, even in the, in the competitive world, you know, in the, when I was talking about figure bikinis, also the same, about half of the women in that world don't have regular menstrual cycles. They are not bleeding every single month. That could be because of exogenous hormones that they're taking, but also because their body fat is just too low. The other thing can be too much exercise. So if you are overdoing it, my cardio bunnies, even, even you can overtrain, you can probably overdo it on the weights as well. So if you're not recovering properly and you're doing too much exercise, that can also lead to changes in your period. Um, the other thing that can give you light periods, I know this is like, thanks, Captain Obvious, but pregnancy, right? It's like, all right, Captain Obvious with the pregnancy uh, comment, but yeah, during pregnancy, your period should stop. But what I, the reason why I'm bringing up pregnancy is implantation bleeding usually happens. So this is, so the egg is fertilized in and around ovulation, right? So you release the egg. Uh, if you're trying to get pregnant or the sperm meets the egg and it's fertilized, the egg now is going to implant into the lining of the uterus somewhere around a week to two weeks after you ovulate. Well, that coincides with when you probably should be getting your period, right? So if you release the egg at ovulation, that's about week two of your cycle, 
your implantation bleeding, uh, which is um, like kind of spotting, is um, happening when the egg is attaching to the uterine lighting, lining, as I mentioned. So it it may seem like a light period, but what's actually happening is you're pregnant and you've just experienced some implantation bleeding. So I uh, wanted to just make sure that uh, if you think you might be pregnant, um, if you had, you know, if you're planning on getting pregnant and you had a really light period, it might not be a period, it might be implantation bleeding. And of course, stress always, uh, I would recommend um, going and listening to my perimenopausal masterclass on stress. Part one, I talk for a significant amount of time on the show about the effect that stress can have on the body's hormones, which can interrupt the regular menstrual cycle and the propagation of ovulation and all of that. So stress management is absolutely paramount for a proper, proper flow, proper bleed week, if you will. Another more questions about perimenopause. So again, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna answer the, you know some of the questions were when does it start, how to prepare for it, what are the early signs of perimenopause. So I will say that I covered this in the perimenopausal masterclass, but just for review because we don't all learn immediately when we hear something for the first time. The classic definition of perimenopause is at some point. So, so specific, right? At some point in your mid thirties, you're going to start to notice persistent and consistent changes in your hormones, namely progesterone. Okay. So we will start to see progesterone starting to decline. And when we are thinking about symptoms of low progesterone, it might be difficulty getting or staying pregnant, breakthrough bleeding, like we were mentioning or spotting during the second half of the menstrual cycle, symptoms of PMS. So particularly the emotional symptoms of PMS being heightened. So progesterone really acts to lull the brain to sleep. It does that through activating GABA uh, neurotransmitters, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. And it basically just rocks the brain to sleep, all the fear and anxiety centers and sort of lulls the brain into sort of a blissful state. So if you are finding that you have more fear, more anxiety, uh, difficulty sleeping at night, and you're in your 40s, it may be due to the low progesterone. You might have low progesterone, so you should definitely be getting that um, tested. Other symptoms of low uh, progesterone would be having migraines right before, or like really bad headaches right before bleed week. So kind of in the two to three days right before you're bleeding, uh, we call these menstrual migraines. Very heavy menstrual flow. So this is like unopposed estrogen, like estrogen is going unchecked in that luteal phase of the cycle. Um, anxiety, as I mentioned, swollen, painful breasts as well. Again, this is this is largely because progesterone kind of keeps estrogen in check. And when we have low progesterone, estrogen is stimulating proliferation in the cells of the breast. It's causing, uh, you know, cell reproduction, which we don't want always uh, with the breast, as you might imagine. Um, when we think about symptoms of perimenopause, they can be I mean, sure, they can be hot flashes, uh, can be bad sleep. Those are sort of the big ones, but they can also be more subtle. Like there's a, there's also signs of perimenopause that are not just hot flashes. So, you know, back pain and neck pain that you never had before, joint pain, stiffness, right? Um, difficulty concentrating, being more anxious, weight gain despite, you know, isocalorically, like you're still consuming the same uh, calories that you always have, right? feeling more angry or like the world is against you, right? 
not wanting to dress up or not wanting to see your friends, your ambition waning, like you just feeling like, gosh, I just can't push this hard anymore. Not wanting to be snuggled, not wanting to be touched, having no libido, thinning hair, brittle nails. Like these are all more subtle, like not and not more obvious signs of perimenopause, but they are usually, I mean, all diseases exist on a continuum. And this is sort of the, I'll call those like entry points potentially. So um, a lot of the things that we talk about on the show, diet and training and stress management are really going to help with some of those things and sometimes getting uncomfortable. Like when you don't want to dress up or socialize or see your friends, making sure that you dress up and socialize and see your friends. Uh, every single time I do that, cause I can kind of run a little introverted. So sometimes I'll be like, ah, you know, I won't reach out or I won't make plans or I'll cancel the plans or whatever it is. I always feel better after I've seen people always. And so sometimes it means parenting yourself in a way where knowing that there's people that really love you and really value time with you and making sure that you prioritize time with them as well. All right. Do I still intermittent fast? (laughs) Uh, I do. So I do intermittent fast still. I still think that it is a great way to control calories. I still think that it's a great way to um, improve autophagy, although it's a very hard metric to even, you know, sort of quantify. But my fasting these days is pretty gentle. So I probably fast, I don't know, 12 to maybe on the upper end, 14 hours a day, like nothing really more than that, which means that my eating window is probably 10 to 12 hours, um, which is, you know, good chunk of the day. So most of my fasting is while I'm sleeping. So I sleep for eight to nine hours every night. That's what I love to do, depending on where I am in my cycle. If I'm about to bleed, I like to sleep more. Uh, When I am bleeding and in my sort of pre-ovulatory, before I ovulate, I don't need as much sleep. But in the luteal phase, I certainly need a bit more. What I have found over the uh, past several years, I used to be the girl that would would delay eating until noon, and then I would sort of eat all of my calories between, you know, call it 12 p.m. and 8 p.m. I have really had a stark phasic shift in when I start eating and when I end eating. So I usually start eating right around my workout. So in that peri-workout area again, so right before or I'm putting a protein scoop in my water, so during, and then after my protein and my carbs um, afterwards. And that's probably happening at some, somewhere around 7 a.m. So I'm usually at the gym, you know, depending on the night before, you know, I'm probably getting home at about 7, 7.15, and I'm eating at that time. And then I finish eating in the afternoon with the boys. So, uh, you know, my my boys get home, we have dinner at five o'clock, and partially... Um, that's because I need to fuel my kids for their, you know, for all of the sports that they do and their after school activities. They will usually come home from sport and eat again at eight or nine, sometimes nine thirty in the evening. But we have sort of one dinner and my kids, because they're, you know, still growing, they're still anabolic, they will have two dinners. So uh I usually stop eating at about five. And then if they're eating, let's say at eight or nine o'clock, of course I'll sit with them and we'll chat and I'll have some water or some tea or something. But the the whole point with intermittent fasting is I think it's a useful tool. I think it's a great tool for, for daily use. I just make it so easy that I don't even think about it. And so that's probably why many of you have noticed that I don't really talk about fasting that much anymore because I feel like 
It's a habit that I do almost always, but it's so gentle that I barely notice it. So if I'm eating from like seven to five or seven to six or, you know, whatever it is, um, how, how, how many hours is that? Is seven to five is going to be 10 hours uh, of eating. If I'm eating seven to six, that's 11 hours, seven to seven is 12 hours. You know, I, I just kind of do it and I don't really think about it. And I think that if you can make most of your health habits that easy, the likelihood of you adhering to them over time is going to be so much better because it just becomes automatic. All right. So let's talk about seed cycling. This was a great question that came up and I wanted to make sure to uh, answer this one as well. I'm going to be super honest with you guys. Okay. So I know that seed cycling exists. I know that there's lots of people that swear by it. I I'm never going to say, I'm never going to um, discount a woman's story. If a woman says to me, having sesame and flax seeds have saved my period, have saved my menstrual cycle, my answer is going to be then continue doing it. I am pre-framing that because first, I never remember which seeds go where. <laughs> like, okay, so seed cycling basically is that you're supposed to have certain seeds in the follicular phase or the first two weeks and then other seeds in the luteal phase. I never remember which one goes where. Okay. So, um, I think that the premise is, is that the phytoestrogens, let's say in something like flax seeds can help increase or decrease estrogen levels as, as, as needed. Um, and certainly phytoestrogens, uh, just as a quick reminder, are compounds, plant compounds that basically mimic the action of estrogen. They can occupy the estrogen receptors as well. There's also things like uh, zinc and selenium um, from some of these seeds that you can take to help with promoting progesterone production, right? So when we look at something like pumpkin seeds, which I believe is in seed cycling, zinc from pumpkin seeds you know, it's claimed also to promote progesterone production for the preparation of the luteal phase. Okay. Um, and then there's also the polyphenols, um, which are supposed to inhibit estrogen levels from increasing too much vitamin E again for progesterone levels. And that's all fabulous. I guess my only comment is that there's a lot of other sources of let's say zinc. So if we think about pumpkin seeds, really great source of zinc, so do oysters right? So I will, I will personally, I'll have oysters every day of the week. I love oysters. Um, so I will always have oysters re or I'll have Brazil nuts, I guess. Is that seed cycling with those? No, cause they're nuts. And we're just talking about seeds. So Brazil nuts also, you know, when we talk about selenium heavyweight champ, right? They are the undisputed heavyweight champ, macho man, Randy Savage. There's my reference, my little Easter egg reference for those of you that used to watch it when it was called the WWF. Uh, you know, it is, um, you know, kind of a heavyweight champ, right? So much selenium in Brazil nuts. So my point here is that you certainly can seed cycle. I am just kind of naturally in my diet, usually putting some kind of seed, like if I have cottage cheese or Greek yogurt, which I like to have as a snack, um, cause it's super high in protein. I will also usually have, it's like chia or flax. I have pumpkin seeds. I also like to put, uh, pistachios, which is not technically a seed, but it's one of my favorite nuts. So I'll put that on my Greek yogurt or I'll put it in my cottage cheese for a little texture and a little crunch. But there are other foods other than these kind of particular seeds that can help with 
some of the proposed, you know, the the proposed efforts, if you will, of seed cycling. So I'm not against it. I just think that I don't know how much evidence there is a in the literature to say that it it's only the seed cycling. Like there's something inherent to the seeds that can help that. So I think that they're great. I think that you can and should try it. And if it works for you, then you do you boo. Like if it works for you, I'm all in like Flynn. Like I want you to do, I want you to do it. Um, but it's, you know, keeping in mind, there's so much bioindividuality. You're only really going to know if you try and also know that the, you know, the phytoestrogens, the zinc, the selenium, the vitamin E, there's also a lot of other rich sources in whole food products that can also help to facilitate a normal menstrual cycle. So that's where I stand, I guess, on seed cycling. I guess I'm I guess I could qualify my position as neutral. <laughs> so it's like, yes, they can work. And uh, there are other sources that can also do the job just as well. I think there was a question about mobility workouts. And I did want to touch on this for a moment because as um, a chiropractor who's been trained as a chiropractor, who has a pretty, um, I feel, blessed um, education on human movement, I think that mobility is often the forgotten vertical. So, and I, I'm, I'm guilty of it too. So we talk on the show a lot about nutrition. We talk a lot about fitness and exercise and squats and deads and, you know, all the things, hip thrusters, all the things. Uh, there's not a lot of discussion about mobility and proprioception and stability. And I saw it in practice for almost 20 years when I had someone come in with an injury, let's say they injured themselves at CrossFit. They injured themselves. I don't know. They injured themselves in a car accident. It didn't matter how they injured themselves. There would be the care that I would provide in the clinic. So it would be the, you know, often the adjustment. Uh, There would be muscle work. There might be, um, uh, we had a rehab center. So I would go and give them rehab exercises and they would do the exercises in the clinic at the end of their adjustment but then that would be the, they wouldn't go and they wouldn't do it again until they came back into the clinic, which is why I often had patients in the clinic two, three, sometimes depending on the severity, four times a week, because I knew that the only time that they were going to do their rehab was after their adjustment. And so I would say that mobility is a vertical of fitness and human movement that is often underlooked. I will say that most progress or maybe more accurately lack of progress in the gym is because you are not working on your mobility. It is because you are not working on your proprioception and stability, which is two words that are kind of like interchange, like proprioception stability is kind of talking about the same thing. So an example of that might be if you, for example, are doing an overhead press. So this is where you might be doing a shoulder press. You're holding two dumbbells in your hand. Your elbows are um, flexed at 90 degrees. And then what you're trying to do, if you're watching me on YouTube, you'll kind of get a visual here. But if you're trying to extend the arm up, then that that's you know what we call an overhead press, a dumbbell overhead press. If you notice when you're progressing, you're applying the principles of, let's say, progressive overload, and you're noticing that on heavier weights, one arm is able to get up and the other one is struggling. That's a stability issue, usually in the scapula. So it, it might be uh, a teres major, minor, infra, or supraspinatus issue 
where you're not able to like stick the scapula onto the back of the rib cage. Uh, so that could be subscapularis as well, which is a muscle that's kind of underneath um, the scapula. So without kind of going too far down this uh, super nerdy conversation, this is like where I get kind of turned on. I'm not going to lie, but this is where so if you're if you're if you're noticing like when you're pressing up that your right side you're always able to get up like I don't know let's say you're doing 30 pounds or something, but on the on the right on the left side you're struggling or it, it gets up slower like you're not able to contract as fast. It's a stability issue. So mobility is something that everybody overlooks. And if you are consistently getting injured in the gym, like at, let's say, and I did this for years, even as a freaking chiropractor. Okay. So I would approach my PR on the squat. So I would approach my, so my PR is like uh, on the squat is uh, 185. So I would get up to 185 pounds on the squat and without fail, I'd put one of, you know, I'd kind of do my warm ups, and I would do like, just like a little bit of a warm up, but not really working on ankle mobility, not really working on hip mobility because I have such a strong back, I was like, well, I have all the spinal flexion and all the spinal movement in the world. I don't need to work on my ankle mobs, whatevs. And without fail, I would hurt my knee. Without fail, I would tweak it at 185 pounds. And then what do I have to do? Well, I have to go back and I have to drop the weight and then I have to work back up to one. So I was just like a hamster on a hamster wheel going down to 135, working my way back up to 185, injuring myself again, and then doing it again, like an insane person. Okay. So what has become um, something that I used to get frustrated with, with my patients and in myself has become something that I do all the time. So always before a leg day, there's always ankle mobility. There's always hip mobility. So I'm always trying to open up the hips. I'm always trying to uh, improve my um, ankle mobility, my dorsiflexion, my ability to basically to approximate um, my foot to my tibia. Um, I have been adjusted, you know, as a chiropractic student and as a chiropractor for the better part of, well, I guess it'll be over 20 years now. So I have a very strong back. Um, I never have any issues there. I'm very flexible with my back, certainly hold tension in, in certain areas. I have sort of a, a pattern that I hold tension in. But for me, I need to focus on hip and ankle mobs, right? So always before a leg day, I'm always working on opening up the adductors. And I will actually, depending on my mobility warm-up, I will that will determine how much weight I'm putting on the bar. So I might have slept badly the night before. I don't know, kids are something, something, husband, something, something, like whatever it is in my life. Um, depending on how my mob warm-up goes, that's kind of what determines the bar, like how much I'm squatting that day. For my shoulders... It's lots of like windmill, uh, windmill type movements. So basically the shoulder, so basically the humerus kind of twisting and turning, if you will, in the, glenohum in the glenohumeral joint, right? Or I'll do a lot of scapular articulation, something that's called pales and rails. This is, um, I was taught this by uh, one of the, um, uh, it's called functional range conditioning that I took uh, classes on several, several years ago. But pales and rails are uh, basically teaching the central nervous system how to control and function in in all in all ranges of motion, right? And um, the founder, Dr. Andrew, um, uh, Dr. Spina, great name for a chiropractor, by the way, um, always talks about control. Always talks about how to control it. And one of the things that I think is important, even from a weightlifting perspective, is that when you're thinking about weightlifting, you control the weight. 
the weight does not control you. And that means that you should be able to freeze at any point in your range of motion in your, let's say your squat, we're talking about squat. So you're doing a squat. I should be able to say freeze and you should be able to freeze and hold that position. If you're not, if you don't have control over your range of motion, you're doing too much, like you're lifting too much weight. And, um, you know, I talk about this in my, with my doctors and my health coaches that I, you know, in our private mastermind, but, um, this is where the ego is the enemy in the gym because we all want the big weights, right? We all want the PRs. We all want to, you know, I always like, you know, I, I want to squat a, the, the equivalent of a baby elephant. Like I, I want to have big squats. Like I want to, you know, I like my big squats and I cannot lie. I want to have those numbers and I want to do it with full range of motion. I want to get my ass to the grass. I want my, my hip and my ankle mobility perfect. And I was talking about this with my friend, um, actually right before the day before I got married, uh, at one of the events, I was talking with my friend Connor and I was saying to him, one of the things that I've come to realize about progressive overload is 10 perfect reps, like perfect reps. So perfect placement, perfect range of motion, perfect descent and ascent, right? So perfect concentric and eccentric. That's also progressive overload right? You can have, if you can punch out 10 pristine reps, that's better than six great ones. And then you struggled for the rest of them, right? So, um, that's where I stand on mobility workouts. They're extremely important, really, really, uh, I think that they should be really essential, uh, for anyone before they start working out. I know if you're going to a gym, it's like, Oh my God, I got to get the squat racks. You sort of run to your position and then just start but having some kind of mob workout really, really helpful for progression, uh, developing stability and being able to control your center of mass, I think is super important. All right. So let's leave on that nerdy note. Um, I hope that you found this AMA really helpful. Um, we're going to do this AMA bit, if you will, uh, about once a month. So I'm going to be, uh, for now, I think the easiest way to do it is polling on Instagram. If you have, if you have different suggestions, please let me know. But I am going to be asking for your input. What do you want me to be talking about on the show? And based on what you tell me, I'm going to create content like I did today for you. So please let me know if you loved today's episode, didn't love today's episode, what you'd like to see more of, what you'd like to see less of. And we'll talk to you very, very soon. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast better with Dr. Stephanie is for general information only and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare providers, advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 